Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. And along with me is Jonathan Pritchett. Jonathan Pritchett on the Pritchett Cam. All right. So, <laughs> oh, guys, I'll tell you what. I, guys, I got news for you. Hey, Miguel, I got news for you. I think we got way more reason to believe the shroud than I used to think. And I, and I went through a shroud, um, a, sh- a shroud fever phase where yeah. all I could think about was the shroud, but I forgot a lot of this and there's stuff I didn't know before. And I mean, look, all I got to say is the more that comes out, the, the deeper you go with this, you, you who are skeptics out there, you ought to thank the God you don't believe in that the Catholic church won't let us get near this thing <laughs> because the more stuff that comes, the further you probe this thing, the, the more convincing, I mean, I'm not saying I'm convinced, but the more convincing it gets. Am I right, Pritchett? Yes, you are right about you being more convinced. I am just fascinated with the subject matter at this point, and I want to learn more. I want to begin my shroud phase. Having been through it, I don't have your vantage point, so I don't know all the ins and outs that you know that now that you've come back around to it, you're like, now more than ever. But I do want to get into it more because I I am intrigued, fascinated. I think that I think that guys like Habermas and the guy that we are going to discuss his article today, Mark Foreman. I think they're right that we don't need to neglect this, and it is being neglected in, in, in apologetics, and it does have apologetic value. So, uh, it, yeah, I'm 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 uh, going to be entering my shroud phase that every apologist goes through. You know, late to the party, but yeah, baby, yeah. you're in. Yeah, I'm going to start oh, with his that, that bibliography. Yeah, Have get to the we book. We got some shroud data for you today. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be good. What's up, Doctor Gildo? I see you there. All right, the image on. So uh, last week we talked about a chapter from this upcoming book, still not released yet, yeah. called "Raised on the Third Day," and these are articles in favor of. Uh, or in, uh, in, um, honor, honor of Gary honor Habermas of Gary Habermas. And, um, it's also in favor of him too. I mean, you know, it's in favor of but, his positions. Yeah. As far as I can tell, someone says I'm getting a little crazy with the, with the two button rule here. But, um, uh, so that was one chapter and it was more or less on why the carbon dating that was supposed to have proved that the shroud was forged in the middle ages, uh, man-made, um, yeah. and it fails. Was a, and it's a good primer to get you caught up on the current state of the research as far as where shroud research is at. So 
That was that was last week's. Yeah, and I, I Miguel points this out. I just meant to say this. Sean McDowell interviewed Lycona and Habermas. Habermas feels pretty strongly. He says sixty to eighty-five percent sure, depending that, on the depending on when you ask him. Yeah, yeah. Where is that? Is that what you would say too? Oh, I don't know. I, I'm not initiated enough to have an opinion. But I'm thinking after you open what, the show saying all of this. I, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying the more you study it, yeah. the more reasons you have to be skeptical are peeled away. Well, okay, 50 to 65 percent then? I'm over 50 percent. You're over 50 percent. I'm over 50 percent. Yeah. Okay. okay, so that was what that was about last week. And that was, I, that, I think that was one of our best shows ever. I had a blast. It's the Pritchett cam, not the subject matter. That's part of it. Yeah. I mean, everybody loves the Pritchett cam. We got multiple uh, yeah. compliments yeah. about the Pritchett cam. You know, um, but but here's you only get to see me on this channel once a week, you know, and and oh, and just a note of housekeeping. I'm sorry that Trinity Radio has uh, extra hasn't had any uploads. Uh, just as a reminder that Braxton and I do also work for a seminary and yeah. we're also seminary professors yeah. and we're finalizing the academic calendar for 2021 and we're getting the catalog ready and all that. So I have been. Uh, I'm not neglecting, shoot, I've been neglecting the Theology Geek Fitness and Trinity Radio, but it's only because I'm busy working. So uh, there will be more videos to come once we get get through all this. So, so <laughs> don't unsubscribe just yet. I've got some stuff coming up with Tim Stratton and uh, Nick Quint, and there's going to be some good episodes in Trinity Radio Extras, just time. Anyway. Um, Katie Mullinax says, and thank you for that substantial super chat, Katie. She says your opinion about the shroud is no longer shrouded in as much doubt. That's right. No, just you're, some you're, doubt. You're, yeah, just some, just a, just enough. The Pritchett cam is like Mike Winger's cat cam. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, so that's I'm what that was about. Is why the carbon fourteen dating uh, that that supposedly showed that this thing was was a forgery um, or doesn't date as far back as we'd like um, if it's if it's Jesus. Um, that that's bunk. And yeah. this week, what we're talking about is, okay, so what is it and how did it get there? Which is the thing Pritchett kept being most interested in last time. Yes. Um, and I'm glad that we read these in the, the order that we did instead of starting with this one first. I think so. Yeah. That. Even though this one comes first in the book. Right. I don't think that that was a good move editorially, but I'll just. What's cool though. Well, we'll get to it. So, this, yeah. so what is up with this image on the show? I'll break it down for us. Mark W. Foreman. Well, um, first, uh, is there plausible historical, medical, scientific, and textile evidence that the shroud is the genuine article? Oh, you see what he did there? Mm -hmm. Second, what is the best explanation for how the image was formed on the shroud? So these are the two things he's going to try to figure out or try to lay out in this article is, um, do we have the data to determine that this thing's genuine? And then secondly, if it's genuine, how did this image get there? But yeah. he really, that's kind of misleading. And he has a even help, if it's not genuine, he's yeah. going to try to see how it got there. And he has a helpful list for reference of 24 items of criteria uh, yeah. of interesting details about the shroud that when you're weighing historical stuff and you're weighing the process in which the shroud was made, it's got to be able to account for all of the, this data that we are all this list of, of features about the shroud and you, you begin to see that all of the reproductions fall short uh, of being able to, to, to account for all of this data. So uh, he helps laying that out at the beginning of his chapter, because by the time he rolls around to the end to talk about the apologetic value, 
you know, when you have all of this data about the shroud, you have to, you know, you, he takes the Gary Habermas approach of minimal facts and says, what is the best uh, approach apologetically yeah. to, to, to deal with this? And what are the minimal facts you have to deal with? And then what is the best explanation given explanatory scope, explanatory power, plausibility, less ad hoc, illumination, and so forth? You know, just the normal criteria for historiography. You know, I, yeah. I'll tell you what. You, you, you give people books, you send them to college, and they eat the covers. I thought that we were, I thought we were so tight, the programmer. And, and here I get, Dr. Hunter is an old geezer. Well, you know what? My daughter thinks so. But guess what? 30-year-olds are old geezers to my daughter who's 12. Um, yeah, I must be ancient. Gregory man. Fisher. Thank you. We love you too. We, if, we, if they we think you're you old, and I'm what? I'm four years older than you. Um, at least <laughs> they think your kids probably think I'm a fossil. Okay. All right. Let's let's get to this. So here's the problem: is the Catholic Church won't let us do a lot with this thing, and so this yeah guy, that bothers me too. Let's, uh, stop right there. Okay. That that actually. That really bothers me because, like I said, I think I said this last week's program, we're at that place now where we have enough research that it throws this whole thing into chaotic doubt, and you can go a number of different ways with it. But now we have all of this better technology. When a better time than now to apply all of this stuff? And this is one of the points that Mark Foreman makes in his, in his articles. We need more testing. Let us at this thing. And we're at a point now where... You know, research is, I think he used the word stagnant, and that's right, because we can't do anything more in, in, until we get more research. And yet, research, you know, direct research and scientific experiment on the Shroud right now would would illuminate so many different things that have come up in the last 40 years about this thing, and it's like no, no, no from the church. And it's only been visible, what, four times, he said? And twice of those were only viewed for, for a television audience, and two of those times... Uh, in the last, what, since the 80s uh, were available for people to go view uh, in person. So th this, the Catholic Church, uh, you got you to gotta let people at it. Pritchett, Jamie Russell says, let's Pritch it from the mountaintops. <laughs> oh, man. This is the home of dad jokes <laughs> and puns. All right, so let's get, uh, let's, let's get to the, in fact, on the point you're just making about how hard it is to do research on it when you don't have it, is he says it is analogous to investigating the back of the moon. Yeah. Few have actually seen it, so for most of us, all we have to go on are photographs. But yeah, he lays out. Um, well, first of all, now you, you can ask the question: What about um, what about you? Can't, we may not be able to do the scientific testing more that we'd like to do. There has been a lot done, but but that we'd like to do. But you can do historical studies and see what what is there in history. And uh, just before we walked in here, Dr. Pritchett and I were talking to another professor who was saying, well, you don't see it mentioned anywhere in history. So why? Well, hold on a second. The Shroud of Turin has only been called the Shroud of Turin since it's been in Turin in Turin. Yeah. So uh, before that, it might have been called, well, lots of things. For example, it was called um, the um, image of Edessa. A lot of things that I can't find image right of the Son now. Of God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Image of God incarnate. Mandy Lion. The Acario yeah, Poeta. 
not made by human hands. The image of Edessa, like you said. There were several other names. It, and Mandelion. it might have been called wherever it was. It could have been called the, the, the Shroud of, 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 of you know, Tatooine. I don't know. So <laughs> here's the thing. So you got you to come up. You, you got you to look for other t- names for it. You can't say, well, I don't see Shroud of Turn anywhere written, written in, in church history. Yeah. So, But there are actually uh, examples where it's probably being discussed. Um, elsewhere, uh, but but we're not going to get into all those. Well, at least as early as the 800s uh, AD. I know that, that that would probably be, you know, a good benchmark, but that still predates the 1290 to 1350. But they said, but they said more research needs to be done because you could probably go back further if you're not looking for the phrase the shroud or mm-hmm. the shroud. Of and we actually have a conversation from church history that it's. And it's still middle, medieval period. I think it's like in the 1300s, but it's before it was in Turin where this guy is talking about it with another guy. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you can check that out. So what is this? What what does the shroud? We didn't really get into this as much last mm-hmm. time. So what are we talking about? What what are we looking at here? Yeah. Well, the well, shroud that's an important measures. Question, what are we looking at here? Because you got to think this is something you and I talked about after the program last week. Uh, first, for, what are we talking about here? We're talking about that we live in a world where this artifact exists and nobody can explain how it came from stop and think about that for a second why are we talking about it on trinity because we live in a world where this thing exists and there's no good explanation for how it it the image was formed and so it's a puzzle it's a mystery ah scruff boy has a has a theory and we're going to get to all the theories this falls into it uh, the nose, for example, would have been in contact with the cloth. Oils from the skin and whatever Jesus was covered with would have attracted dirt. Well, we're going to get we're going to get to the, and it's not to say there aren't debris and stuff found within the shroud, but it, does that explain the image that's that we're going to? But anyway, so the shroud measures at fourteen feet six inches long by three feet nine inches wide. Ancient tradition has claimed that this is the original burial cloth that held the crucified body of Jesus of Nazareth. This shroud contains the image of a man that has a number of striking elements consistent with that of a man who has undergone crucifixion, including some very unique features described in the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. Most of these are observable by carefully examining the shroud. Among them are, here's the list. Would you like to read the list? No. Okay. You have a better reading voice. Here's the here's the re- here's the list. Do it in your um, your audible version of Chronicles of Adonai voice. Oh, I don't know if I can reproduce it. Oh, can you not? That was so great. I could do it in a William Lane Craig voice. No, I could do it do in that. a Sean no, Connery you're voice. You're the only person who the thinks you're the impre- frontal you're the only person on the planet is of a five feet ten inch naked. Your kids male. aren't even impressed with this. Weighing an estimated one hundred and seventy pounds. I'm continue to talk over it. So, number one is the frontal and dorsal image is of a 5 feet 10 inch naked male weighing an estimated 170 pounds. The image is a high resolution, clear, and detailed image with no distortions. The image, number three, appears to be in a state of rigor mortis, lying flat with arms crossed down over the abdomen and one leg raised at the knee. A puncture wound in the right wrist, the left wrist is hidden from view, Consistent with wounds from being nailed to a cross is apparent. The thumbs are folded under the long distended fingers. Scourge wounds on the chest, legs, and back, which match a Roman flagrum commonly used to beat a man in first century Palestine, can be seen. It is estimated that there are over 120 wounds. Six, puncture wounds in the scalp and head are consistent with a cap of thorns. Number seven, a wound in the right side is consistent with a stabbing 
From, uh, from it exudes a pool of blood and clear liquid that is judged to be serum. Eight, a puncture wound is identifiable around the feet and one nail goes through both feet. Nine, blood surrounds the wrist and scalp wounds, including blood flowing up the arms consistent with blood from the wrist flowing down from suspended arms. The face, number 10, appears to have been beaten with a left swollen cheek and raised right eyebrow. Blood is spattered on the face and in the beard. 11, the, the hair is long and appeared to be tied in the back. The beard has a distinct divided look and parts of it may be missing. Now, right there, by the way, actually your Sean Connery's I stopped doing my Sean Connery. It's okay sometimes. Like when we were in the elevator the other day. All my voices are great. No. You should have been there at the Rethinking Hell conference. They loved my William Lane Craig and my Sean Connery because I did mm. both in my really Thinking Hell speech. So look forward to now, that. Now the hair thing, because because of the, there was a Discovery Channel thing, or was it History Channel, or something where they reproduced what, you know, what Jesus likely looked like, and it was the short-haired Jesus. And so now uh, one of the knocks against the shroud is the... The, the length of the hair. Yes. And people want to make fuss about that. Because we can't have a Jesus with long hair. Right. Long hair is a shame to him. That's man. the Ted Neely, Jesus Christ superstar Jesus. That's not the Jesus of first century past. Number 12, abrasions are identifiable on the nose and knees consistent with a man falling down. Dirt has been identified in the abrasions. 13, on the dorsal side, abrasions are identified on the shoulders consistent with the carrying... Consistent with the carrying of a heavy object. Um, the image on the shroud is a negative image. Okay, now this becomes really important, and I've seen some of you mentioning it already. So, okay. Punchbowl haircut. Okay, do it. Read one point in William Lane Craig. Oh, hold on. Um, I won't interrupt. I've seen some of you already in the comments mentioning that this is a negative image. And negative images weren't yet discovered in first century Palestine. There you go. Um, all right. 15. In addition to the image. Oh, wait. I didn't read that one. The, the image on the shroud is a negative image, meaning <laughs> that normally light areas appear dark and dark areas appear light. This became apparent when the first photographs were taken of the shroud in 1898. There you go. 15. In addition to this image, Dr. Craig, the shroud also contains a number of scorch marks, holes, and until recently, patches over holes as well as water stains. All right, that's enough. This is due to a 1532 fire that broke out in the church in Chambery, France, where the shroud was being housed. Silver on the casket holding the shroud melted and poured down on the folded shroud within. The holes were patched in 1534 and a backing was attached to the shroud in 2002. The backing and patches were removed and a new backing sewn on. Um, yeah, just, just noticing the interesting comments now coming in about my impersonations. I can also do all the Frank Oz characters, but I won't, I won't belabor that. Uh, 16, the linen is a 3-1, that's 3 over 1, herringbone weave, consistent, Pritchett, first century. with a first century weave pattern, but not with any European fabric of the Middle Ages. In addition to the above observations, the following were determined by the 1978 STIRP investigations. If you want to know more about STIRP, go back to last week's episode. 
called Rethinking the Shroud. Sounds like that group from Lost that was doing crazy stuff, doesn't it? The the uh, yeah, it wasn't Sturp. No, I know, but it sound it's something kind of like that. Like the, it's not DARPA, but Dharma, Dharma, the Dharma Initiative. Yeah. Why did I have such trouble with that? Benjamin Handelman, thank you so much for that incredible um, super chat. Day 100 of diet, down 38.8 pounds. This is Pritchett's cut of the money. I'm saving, keeping this up. Yes. I'll send that to you on PayPal, Pritchett. Okay. Um, well done. Yes, very inspiring for the rest of us. <laughs> You're uninspirable. I'm on Lexapro, which makes you not have very much of a desire to do hard things. Okay. Like, but I did debate Dan Barker. Yeah. So that tells you how hard that is. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Uh -huh. All right. Uh, here we go. <laughs> the image is a superficial image lying on the utmost top fibers of the thread, making up the linen. A thread is made up of about 100 to 200 fibers. The depth of the image is about 0.2 microns of a single fiber. Right. Deep. And this is, this is important when we get into discussing Break it down, Pritchett. The, the forgeries, because one of the problems with the forgeries is number one they use the phrase superficiality okay so the impression is not that uh deep into the fabric at all and so when people try to duplicate this it's not as superficial because it goes deeper into the fabric when they try to do forgeries right the image does worse the image on the shroud in addition to being three-dimensional you have it double-sided Right. Instead of just one side. And so that poses a, you know, a huge problem for people trying to reproduce this image with with any kind of chemicals. Plus, you couple that with the fact that there were no chemicals found whatsoever to lead anyone to the conclusion that it was an artist, you know, paint job. It's just it's just it's a mystery, man. We don't know how we got this thing. Don't know how we made this thing. But this is an important point. The superficiality of the image, double-sided, uh, makes reproductions. And people have come, you know, to similar results with the shroud, but nothing uh, reproduced so far has, has been able to pass the test of the, these 24 items. Pritchett, while we have the Pritchett cam on you, thank you so much, Jose Martinez, for that $5 super chat. Yes, sir. He says, happy Friday. God bless this channel. Amen. How do you respond to the claim that magic and miracles are the same? Depends on what we're talking about. I mean, so I'm, I'm one of those crazy Christians that believes the Bible, right? And so mm -hmm. you have sorcery and, and magicians in Egypt. You, you believe know, in demons? Court, huh? You believe in demons? Yeah. Okay, so demons. whoever that is that's sniffing out all of us Christians who believe in demons— to embarrass us, put Pritchett on the list. I believe in angels and demons. And put Jesus on the list too, by the yeah. way. Yeah. So, yeah, um, a miracle event. I like to think of a miracle um, as an you know a a a. I don't like to use the word supernatural. I do. But, but I it, hate when people do that. What? You know, poop on saying supernatural. Like that's I want, a problem. I want to, I want to say it's an. It's, about metanatural, beyond natural. Well, not a not something that doesn't happen. See, that's on its the own problem, in though. The a lot universe. of miracles in the Bible revolve around natural phenomenon occurring. Yes, God but, used it, it, natural phenomenon. Right, He manipulates natural phenomenon. But it wouldn't have happened and, and on and its what own. And what I what I think, 
I want to say J.P. Holding or somebody come up with it, like like an extraordinary feat of strength, uh, in a way. Uh, so you know, just an extraordinary feat of demonstration of power. Okay, I so, like slam our ends, magic or sleight of hand tricks, miracles or violations of the laws of physics. But I would say interventions mm, in the laws of physics, right? So, because it, God can't violate but, what's but, His. But sleight of hand tricks makes it sound like. The, they're There's all no, fake. Yeah. But the Bible doesn't give us any indication, for instance, when Pharaoh's uh, court magicians threw down their stick, the, the, that was phony. Right, right. Because we think that the demonic can do supernatural stuff too. But when we say miracle, we're typically thinking of something yeah. that was wrought by God. Yeah. And, um, and it's not a violation or because... Or performed through one of God's agents, like when the disciples would heal or something. And it's not, it's not a violation because yeah. it's God's place. This is God's cosmos. He's not violating yeah. anything to um, intervene. So um, it's like if I dropped this co this coffee mug, it would naturally fall to the ground. I can intervene, though, and I haven't like violated nature. I just intervened. God does that on a meta level in a miraculous way, I would say. But I, but anyway, that hopefully something in there yeah. as we flailed about with an answer um, made you happy, uh, Martinez. Yeah. All right, well, we can't so discount that magic doesn't exist in any form or what we would consider magic doesn't exist in any shape or form because the Bible gives us, you know, the, the, and at least we also know, for example, that, that the disciples believed that they saw ghosts. So they at least had a conceptual framework for ghosts and thought Jesus was one at one point. So, I mean, whether ghosts exist or not, we, that's, that's at least the disciples believed it was possible. Mm -hmm. So did we, we don't have to come down on that, but at least magic, we have to concede uh, if you believe the Bible that something like magic is, is possible and happens. Well, the reason people say magic is because atheists use magic because they're like, oh, see, these guys just believe in magic. They just believe in their sky daddy. They just believe. And it's like, OK, we believe in something supernatural. But Sky Daddy isn't the right explanation of what we affirm. Magic isn't the right explanation of what we affirm. It, you're, you're, we realize that it's rhetorical that you're trying to. I'm not offended by Sky Daddy. I'm not, I'm not either. I, after, after all the time I've spent on YouTube, I, it, I'm impervious. Yeah. All right, 18. The frontal side of the image has double superficiality. The image not only appears on the top layers of thread, but a fainter duplicate image appears on the other side of the cloth, also on the top layer. Yes, and it's, uh, it's... The image contains 3D formation information with no distortion. What, what, when, you, when you read that, what did you take from that? 3D information like, like shows that the cloth laid on top of something, right? Yes. Like, okay. Um, it wasn't like somebody tried to took a flat cloth and recreated And you can it. see those in the negative image, right? <clears throat> those 3D yeah. pictures, yeah. Uh, and it says, uh, the image contains three information with no distortion. The image density distribution of both front and back images can be correlated to the distance between an object having the shape and contours of a human body and a cloth covering that body. When subjugated to VP8 image analyzer, the 3D information can be observed. Someone in the chat was talking about that just a minute ago. Yeah. Okay, when laid flat, the image has vertical mapping. The mapping of image features from the body to the cloth of the frontal image is more or less vertical, corresponding to the direction of gravity. Uh, 21, the blood on the shroud was tested and found to be type AB human blood. There is no image underneath the blood. 
there are no brush strokes that's indicating also that important. the blood was painted that's on That's also important because when it comes to these forgeries, right, whatever caused the image, there is no image produced underneath where there was blood splatter. But in any forgery, if you apply blood after the fact, you're going to have image under the blood splatters. Wherever you, wherever you put the blood, there's going to mm-hmm. be image under that. There's, that's not the case with the shroud. And that's why duplicating it is so hard. Jamie Russell has wanted to know the answer to this question. Um, and I meant to look into this before we started. Uh, he says, headscarf is separate in the New Testament text. Explain, please. Um, I don't know. I need to look into that. That would be an important thing to, to look into. It could be that you have a headscarf that goes on top of an, uh, the, you know, full the, the, the full yeah. shroud will wrap. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. Hey, you know how I said that if I don't know something, I'll just say, I don't know. Yeah. Hey, that's the right thing to do. Yeah. We found one of those and you ought to do that too. Whoever, anybody out there who don't, don't make up, don't make up stuff. Answer honestly. I don't know. Hey, give us the text for that too, Jamie Russell. Um, all right. Uh, let's, and thank you for the super chat. The let's see the oh so the blood so if this is authentic hey guess what type of blood Jesus had A B type A B um, twenty two the image contains no pigments no dyes no brush strokes no cementation between fibers no clumping and no capillary flow all of which would be evidence of painting dyeing or staining. The image fibers are colored straw yellow due to chemical reactions involving polysaccharides composing the linen fibers, oxidation, dehydration, and conjunction. No substance has been added to create the image. The important thing about this is it's like if you took paint and um, if you took paint and you put it on top of a fabric that's made of threads, those threads, you can imagine they're going to clump around various threads together, right? They're going to string across to other um, threads. You can you can imagine that you've done that. You've seen that. That's not what's happening here, and it's incredibly superficial, just on the top layer of of thread. Okay, um, the image enveloped a dead human body that showed no signs of decomposition and no putrefaction. Now, see, some of these yeah, things can't are can't wh- be a rotting body. Yeah, and some of these things are why we're getting down to okay. What it's a crucified victim, but why think Jesus? Well, this might be one of those reasons to think Jesus, because if this was just any old crucified victim, it would have been decomposed for a lot longer than. Mm-hmm. than what the and lastly, was. 24, when placed under enhanced lighting, an X-ray is produced, which shows bones, especially in the fingers of the hands and the teeth. I didn't quite understand that one. You X-ray this thing and you're seeing bones and teeth. Impressions from the bones. And teeth. Oh, OK, yeah. oh, I got gotcha. you. Okay. Um, okay. Now, which is, which is interesting because in some of the recreations we're okay, we're going to heat a metal body up mm-hmm. and do it. Okay. Are, did, does the metal body have as much detail to replicate bone structure teeth? You know, Especially if you're talking about them trying attempting this in the late 1200s, early 1300s, or to mid 1300s. Thank you for that incredible super chat. I'm going to go with Gildan Dilgett. I seriously love this channel. 
Especially the exegetical videos. Yes, and if you want well, more exegetical videos, go to Trinity Radio Extra, where that's primarily and, the bulk of the stuff there. Yeah, and by the way, I'm sorry, because if you're referencing the Gen like the Genesis series, which is a verse-by-verse, verse, I, I haven't gotten one to one of those in a couple of weeks, and right. I'm falling behind. My goal is to be done with Genesis by the end of the year. Busy time for seminary professors. Yeah. that Because of our academic calendar, we, we post a catalog and, and, and do the webinars. We start in January. That's... For a lot of people, it's a fall thing. For us, we do everything year by year in our calendar years, January to December. So, Yep. Otangelo says, every attempt to replicate it has failed. Yeah, we're going to get to that now. Yep. Um, all but right. I have to say this. The, the ingenuity that these people are going trying to figure out how to make an image, I do appreciate the effort, even if the effort is, I want to prove this thing is fake. I also appreciate the effort of those who say, how did they do this? And I want to see if I can duplicate it, even if they don't care one way or the other about trying to prove that it's fake. I appreciate the effort either way in just trying to see how could you get an image like this? Because it's baffling how you got an image like this. And so all of these attempts just continue to show me how baffling it is that this image came to be. Yeah, real quick. And it should baffle you, too, because nobody has come close. The programmer says, do you intend to pursue a doctorate in Old Testament studies since you are apparently a young man? Trying to get back in my good graces, huh, the programmer? Probably not. If I get another degree right now, it'll probably need to be a... How many initials after your name do you want? I, I probably need to get, like, an MBA or something. Yeah, there, there's... Since I'm primarily an administrator. Okay, right so now. what was the guy that used to work for Trinity, the apologist that had, like, seven doctorates? Oh, yeah, John Wart Montgomery. John Wart Montgomery. And he has like all the, at some point it's like, okay, you don't, and there were earned. They weren't like honorary oh, no, stuff. No, he, he, I mean, he just kept, it's just like, come on, man. When it comes down to it, he says, there are only two general options for how the image on the shroud was formed. Basically either naturally or man-made. So we're going to look at those options. Yes. Early naturalistic theories. Uh, so when this first thing kind of rolled out uh, for people to look at and think about and photograph, it was in 1898. And in 1902, Paul Vignon had a hypothesis, and it was that the image was produced when the shroud came into direct content, contact, content, ooh, typo, with a dead corpse that was wet with sweat, embalming oils, and other liquids. These liquids would have made the shroud stick to the body and would have left a stain on the shroud. This is kind of like what somebody mentioned earlier. Um, but see, here, here's the great thing, because you know how, like you said this earlier, so Gary Habermas has his minimal facts where he's like, here's, I think it's, it's been different numbers, but 14 minimal facts about the death, burial, and resurrection possibly of Jesus. Uh, take any seven you want, and we can make a case. You know, uh, These are the facts that are bedrock facts. All and right, Lycona's like down to two or three. Yeah, and yeah. this guy um, writing this article is like, in honor of Gary Habermas, we can do that with a shroud because I just gave you 24 facts that are facts. And he's like, we can, we can take a handful of those and we can shoot down all these theories with what we already know about it. Yeah. And, uh, so and that's with very limited historical research and scientific research from the late seventies. So this would not leave superficial Remember, Uh, this is what Pritchett said. Superficial, uh, you know, the image is superficial just on the outer surface that it wouldn't explain that. Um, it wouldn't explain why there's no uh, cementation and uh, like the, the, the substance that's painted on there or whatever, clumping around various threads. It would provide no explanation for the negative image. Uh, these people in the Middle Ages or in the first century don't, didn't know anything about negative images. 
and it wouldn't explain that or how it was even made. Um, it wouldn't explain 3D information. Now that's not to say they, they couldn't develop techniques that would produce a negative image they didn't know about. What we're saying is they didn't know how to they intentionally need, produce yeah. a negative image. Uh, wouldn't explain the 3D information, the vertical mapping, or X-ray images. This theory also requires the corpse to have begun decomposition and uh, putrefaction, which is not evident on the shroud. So that fails. at all. Um, he had a second. His hypoth- body did not see decay, according to the Bible. Amen. Facts, yeah. uh, he has a and the uh, shroud's consistent with with that statement. He, the programmer asked what I think about Lydia McGrew's book. Uh, I find it interesting, but here's the thing. My, my position on, first of all, when it comes to Lydia McGrew, I think that her um, undesigned coincidences are fabulous, and I find most of them to be likely. Uh, I'm really impressed with them, and I think they're great for apologetics, but when it comes to the um, harmonization, I think she's right that there is harmonization, and uh, what she and Lycona, for those that know about that, um, that issue, they both agree that there is some harmonization and some um, literary device. I, uh, Lycona thinks there's far more literary device, and she thinks there's far more harmonization, and I'm standing more between the both of them. So, uh, but anyway, there you mm-hmm. go. Um, he had a second theory, Vignon, that it emitted, that the corpse would emit uh, uh, ammoniac vapors due to urea in sweat and blood, and these may have caused the image. Um, there's problems with that. Um, because there would have to be starch on the linen. We found no evidence of that. It's highly questionable if the image would, would, would be non-distorted. Um, and, and that's and a big thing, too, because a lot of, a lot of the, the attempts to reproduce this creates the distortion that's lacking in the shroud. And mm-hmm. so most of the means to, to reproduce this by, I think he uses the phrase, man-made attempts versus natural attempts, uh, Nearly all the man-made attempts, if not all of them, would uh, end up producing distortion, lack of clarity, uh, lack of detail. Uh, one of them produced a lack of detail in the uh, in, in the most of the the reproduction, except for like the hands. But when it comes to the face and other things, uh, there's too much distortion there. So they all failed this test too. You are reading something. Yeah, I'm doing seminary work at at present. Really, during a live stream. Yep. You want to highlight that? All right. So I look at my phone all the time and you don't call me out for it. I don't know why. All right, here we go. Man-made theories. Uh, there was a multi-million pound business. Okay. Uh, there was an announcement made the results of carbon-14 dating, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Edward Hall, director of the Oxford Carbon Dating Laboratory, said there was a multi-million dollar multi-million pound business in making forgeries during the 14th century. Someone just got a bit of linen, faked it up, and flogged it. Critics and skeptics are quick to affirm the forgery hypothesis, just as some in our chat are, but often they do not offer an explanation as to how the forgery might have taken place. Claiming forgery and providing forgery are two very different things. Yes, it's it's easy to claim Russian collusion. It's easy to claim election fraud. Prove it. In eighteen in thirteen eighty nine, Bishop Pierre Darcy wrote a memorandum. Okay, this is just talking about how there was a thing in in history. See how I stab both the Republicans and the Democrats at the in the same comment. Amen. They I both love need some stabbing. Other people, trust me. If you like me, I will find something that will cause you to not like me for a week, and then you'll right. like me again. But I always manage to make. While the painting hypothesis is is popular, it has serious problems when considering the twenty four facts for which we it needs to account. First, the shroud is a negative image. While it is not possible to paint a negative image from where 
while it is not impossible to paint, this is what you just said, um, where would the medieval artist have even conceived of the idea of a negative image? Right. Um, then there's other well, things. Well, what I'm saying is, and if they if they resulted in a negative image, because they would not have conceived of it, it would have been purely by accident, and it wouldn't have been an intentional negative image anyway, mm-hmm. which is what part of what you need if you're wanting to produce a shroud that's going to baffle people seven, eight hundred years later. Yeah, and this this uh, spectrum, this guy, um, there's a fellow here that's an expert in spectrometry. Spectrometry. See, we need Steve Selby. Spectrometry. We need Steve Selby in here to read the names that you can't pronounce because yeah. he has a career of reading the graduates yeah. at Trinity. And since we have students in over 120-some-odd countries, some of the last names can can be confusing for yeah. mere mortals like Braxton and myself. But, <laughs> yeah. but Steve Selby could prattle them off. He knows all of it. It's great. Um, but you'll just have to say this guy. Oh, uh, yeah. Somebody, Super Wood Putty's throwing something out here that came from somewhere. Um, well, I've lost it. He says basically this herringbone stuff hasn't ever been found in, in the first century. Well, that's really interesting since... Um, we have a book that's yet to be released where experts in fields related to this are saying that, that that's not right. So I yeah. don't know. I don't know, man. I'm not an expert on textiles. But, you know, if all of your criticisms about the shroud come from – and this guy does a good job. He's, he's, he's echoing what you and I have said. And I know it's, it's totally self-defeating because here we are on YouTube. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, right, don't get your information, you know, primarily from Discovery Channel – specials and yeah. random websites and, and video blogs and things like that. Which the is wiki, why you say you got from the wiki article. Yeah. Which which what we're doing here is this is not we're we're giving you the scholarship. We're not giving yeah, we're you casual. our scholarship. We have right. none in this area. Right. Okay. We're yeah. giving you what real this is not my field. This not is not Rax's field. field. But instead of telling you just our opinions, we're forming our opinions based on this research and we're giving you the research. From people who were close to But it. still, you should get this book instead of watch this podcast about this book on the yeah, Shroud of Turin. Yeah, right. If you're interested in understanding but it's not what, out yet, so what if you the want it published today, we'll academics... So anyway, this guy with the spectrometry, <laughs> whatever, he, he says, this important evidence confirms the fact that neither organic nor inorganic compounds can be responsible for the body and blood images on the Shroud of Turin. Right. Um, cementation, uh, yeah, cementation between the fibers, 3D encoding. It doesn't answer any of these things. Doesn't answer human blood. Yep. Doesn't answer a lot of these facts. Nope. All right. Uh, what about bass relief base, bass relief and scorching? Um, a linen cloth possibly soaked. This is one of my favorites because everybody's like, well, it looks like maybe it was burned on there. A linen cloth possibly soaked is placed on the metal image and the linen was scorched with a copy of the metal image. Why is somebody doing that anyway? This produces an image that has some of the features found on the shroud, such as a negative image. However, in order to achieve the superficiality of the shroud, um, I love this. <coughs> in order to achieve it, you'd need a metal body heated to 200 degrees Celsius and then have the shroud laid on it by, you know, of course, they don't have the technology to do this, but it has to be for one one hundredth to one tenth of a second and no more, or you've destroyed your uh, It'll shroud. go deeper than the superficiality. Right. Or burn it up. So that's out. You know, yeah. So it's not scorching. And and to think that you could, you're in the middle. Also, time. as you brought out earlier, it pointed out here that there's not there. Whatever is making that image isn't underneath the blood. 
where the blood is. Right. But if you did that and then put blood on it to make this hoax, you would have the image it, beneath the blood. The blood. Would be on the top but of it. on the shroud, there is no image beneath the blood splatters. Yep. Well done, Pritchett. All right, one theory suggested by Nicholas Allen is that the shroud was an example of medieval photo-like process using a camera obscura technique. And what this is like... Now, this is cool, though. This is a cool technique. I don't entirely understand it, but do you? Yeah. Okay, okay, so you you know how you can, like, put a pinhole in a box or whatever, and you want to look at orbits and stuff? It's channeling the light through that uh, onto onto something to produce an image. And it's actually... Thank you, Jeremiah yeah. Apple. Thank you so so much. You're always so generous to us. Yeah. So you're channeling your 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 fun. It's like a it works as a funnel of that that light and heat energy that you're trying to funnel to to produce an image. So that's it. That's all you had to say. Look, we we're experts at this, Pritchett. When I'm mid sip, you can't stop talking because I'm not I I'm not here. I'm not back yet. Okay. Pritchett is slowly becoming a shroud. Believer, he is defending it well. All right. I am. I am. Well, I, I don't know if I can say that I'm a believer yet. But what I what I am is I'm looking at this data and I'm looking at I, I'm defending it from being. Uh, Did you explain what was wrong with this? No, I didn't explain. I just explained what it was because you were asking about this. And I think the process is kind of cool. I mean, it's something technically that you know you could do it. You could do it in a very rudimentary thing in your back. Yeah, so so yeah. as it wouldn't give you the the highly defined image that you want right. like the shroud is. Um it could give you a highly defined like tiny portion like maybe a hand or something. Um but it doesn't it wouldn't explain why the image is underneath the blood like we said before. It wouldn't explain the 3D information or the x-ray features. Um yeah. I think that there you go. Yeah. All right, so um, what about painted glass? Believe it or not, this is a pretty... This was actually a cool way to try to do this. This is a pretty interesting... I'm, I'm not sure I understood it either exactly. It's so like if you want to do... If you want to... If you're... Okay, so if you're a, a parent and you have kids and you're looking for an activity to do with your kids, you know what you could do? You could... You could buy a coffee cup. You could You could try to reproduce these... From Trinity Radio. You could try to reproduce something, an image on on a shroud using colored glass or using you know, kind of telescopic photography, you know, camera, whatever it was called. You could try these in your backyard as science experiments. You know, you could produce the Shroud of Evansville with you and Jolie and Isabel. You oh, know. man. And it I, could be I me. Be, I could be the image. I, okay. How, how awesome would that be? The, yeah, I wouldn't mind the Shroud of Nashville, but the Shroud of Evansville. Oh, come, come on, on man. man. Nashville's going down. No, Nashville's on the rise. What are you no. talking about? So anyway, that didn't work either. Um, yeah, <laughs> they don't work. That's what I'm defending. The, the, I'm, I'm defending against bunk attempts to try to the blood and no forgery. image under the blood. The but I admire the gumption of these people to try to figure out how they did it. But at the same time, uh, if it doesn't give you what you need to match these uh, minimal facts about the shroud, then quit trying to. You can't run around and say, "Oh, it was. A, it's definitely a forgery." Because look, we made something you know, a third of the way similar. Yeah. And these other in te- fact, no, that's, a, that doesn't, that's not going to cut it in the spirit of minimal facts. Even though we have 24 minimal facts, uh, he says, actually all you need superficiality, double superficiality, 3d information and x-ray elements. If you've got those, you can disprove all of these 
forgery things. All right, so then we come to enhanced naturalistic theories. Yeah, you so, talk about that for a second. So, okay. So, um, uh, so, so here's where... He says, refer to the final group as enhanced naturalistic theories, because while the process involves a natural process, radiation, it is enhanced in that there is no real scientific explanation as to what would generate the process, at least to the level that it would have produced the image on the shroud. So we're going to radiation now, but the thing is, we don't have any idea how they would have done this. There doesn't seem to have been a way for them to have done this back then. This first one is called the Corona Discharge Model. A corona discharge, or a CD for short, is a natural electric discharge brought on by the ionization of air surrounding a conductor in the presence of a strong electric field. And so this guy, uh, this guy, uh, Gilio Fonti, is the main researcher suggesting this. And he says this, this um, corona discharge is an atmosphere pressure plasma process that exposes the fabric to high energy electrons that can cause chemical and physical changes on the fabric surface. Now, the problem with this is, um, yeah, Corona discharge does sound disgusting. Um, here's the problem. And I quote Fonte himself, the guy who came up with this raises one major problem with the theory when he comments on the experiment mentioned in this case almost all the chemical physical physics all the chemical physics characteristics match those of the shroud but one question remains what could have developed a 300,000 volt discharge in the sepulcher in the tomb some have suggested now this is how this is this is why i say the further you go with this skeptics the more difficult it becomes this is what they have to this is what they have to theorize some have suggested a massive earthquake could have caused a sufficient electrical discharge, especially if enough radon were present to ionize the air in the sepulcher. Radon gas is often found in confined spaces in the vicinity of Jerusalem. So there you go. Um, maybe that's what it was. Uh, but there's a better hypothesis that many people think is probably the best hypothesis and that is the one to which we now arrive. And that is called the radiation hypothesis. Are you riveted? Are you on the edges of your seats? I guess you mentioned the earthquake to generate the five, the 300,000 volts. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Here's the radiation hypothesis. And this one seems to address all the features of the shroud. While there are variations of the hypothesis, I will stay with the hypothesis suggested by Mark Antonacci. Yeah. <laughs> I would with a name like that, which he calls the historically consistent hypothesis. Mm -hmm. That's a you name. <laughs> you want to make make your make your theory outshine all the rest. Mine's the historically consistent hypothesis. Yeah, I don't like it when people do that kind of thing, though. This hypothesis That's like saying this is the golden chain of redemption. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and if you if you if you criticize my view, what you're criticizing is not my view. You're really criticizing. So I, I don't like that. People try to give it such a name that's beyond. To, including, you know, yes, including the blood, John Beavers. I, I don't I don't like it when they try to give their name something that, that sounds unimpeachable because they hide behind it. Yeah. Even the, this shows you what's, what's at stake here. This is the stakes of this thing. Shroud is authentic. Resurrection is true. Shroud is a fake. Resurrection is true. Yeah, honestly, you should keep in mind, this is just an interesting topic that could provide more detail or, or another well, level. Well, we'll get to that. Uh, we, 
Oh, do you want to cover that part well, of this article? Well, too? when he went at yeah at the end where he talks about the apologetic value. Yeah. Because because okay. he he says that exact thing. That was his conclusion yeah. that this is this is not likely to sway non-religious skeptics who have an unhealthy uh, dose of skepticism about everything. That it's amazing that they get out of bed in the morning, but it kind of could pique the interest of those who are willing to follow the science. It would be nice if the Vatican would let us do more scientific experiments. But what it does do, I think he overreaches a little bit. Um, but the resurrection can be true and demonstrated on other grounds besides the shroud anyway. But the shroud is, if authentic, one heck of a piece of evidence, you know, because it is evidence that can be scientifically tested. Yeah, um, let me get to this super chat real quick that we've got coming. This is 25 Canadian monies. Thank you so much, CC. Um, CC says, love your channel, guys. Did Jesus believe in the soul apart from the body or an afterlife? I heard Barney Ehrman make the claim that the idea of a soul or afterlife was a later invention taken from Greek culture. So on the one hand, there are Christians who actually, there are Christians who actually believe that you don't have an immaterial soul, that you only have a physical body. Um, and those are called physicalists, and uh, a big part of the faculty at Fuller Seminary is in that camp. Uh, Chris Date is in that camp. There are others. Nick Quint, who's sometimes on here, is in that camp. I'm not in that camp. And I'm not in that depending, camp. Here's one thing that just immediately springs to my mind. Uh, normally, I would go to Paul or, or other passages to talk about this issue. But since you asked specifically about Jesus, um, Luke, the, Luke 16, we have the possibly parable, possible, possibly real account, possibly something he was riffing on from, from other cultures at the time, uh, where Jesus is talking about the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah. And if that, if Jesus in any way meant to communicate that there is at all an intermediate period, um, which I get in trouble for saying this with some of my friends, but no matter how you take that, and I'm not inclined to take that as a literal thing. I'm more inclined to take it as a parable type thing. But no matter how you take that, it would seem kind of misleading if Jesus didn't at least seem to believe that there was some sort of an intermediate period. Yeah, place. and the explanations of Paul, depart me with Christ to try to show. Yeah, but that, they asked about Jesus. Yeah, I know, but also with with Paul, you know. Philippians, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Isn't that Philippians? Well, in, in, yeah. in other places, in 1 Corinthians, you know. Um, suggest I, I, the readings from physicalists to try to dissuade that from uh, assuming that Paul has no, uh, I, no, no belief in, in in some sort of postmortem existence just doesn't hold any water. John se seems to believe in a postmortem existence of some kind. Yeah. Um, so I, plus in the second table literature is, I, I you know seems to weigh heavily in, in some sort of. Not heavily, but seems to weigh in that favor. Some of it, I guess, is like some biblical data you could argue either way. Um, but it does seem to... And whether that's Greek influence or not, it's irrelevant. That's just the genetic fallacy. But if, so. Je but if Jesus... I just think that Luke 16 and the rich man Lazarus is... It, it certainly doesn't count in favor of the physicalist position. And I think it, it can count, no matter how you take that story, in favor of uh, the position of substance dualism. Yeah. Um, all right, so, um, yeah, so the radiation 
theory, the historically consistent hypothesis. The I hypo- think Jesus oh, by the way, shout out to Jaden Griffin. This person says, can you shout out Jaden Griffin? I can shout out Jaden Griffin. Shout out to Jaden Griffin on Trinity Radio. Yeah. How's that? Um, this hypothesis suggests that the shroud was irradiated with particle radiation. Particle radiation occurs when protons and neutrons are emitted from atoms. When protons irradiate cellulose, it turns into a straw yellow color. That is the color of the image on the shroud. Robert Rucker writes, "The I know this is a lengthy, I just, you need to hear this. The discoloration is caused by a rearrangement of the electron bonds of the carbon atoms that were already in the cellulose molecules of flax fibers and the linen threads so that the discoloration does not result from new atoms being added to the cloth. The discoloration results from single electron bonds that bond the carbon atoms to the surrounding atoms being changed uh, to double electron bonds. This change from single to double electron bonds of the carbon atoms took place in a pattern to create the front and back images of the crucified man on the shroud. Exclamation point. And doesn't thus happen the, over time. Thus, the discoloration is due to energy added to the cloth, but without substance, i.e. atoms, being added to the cloth. The energy was evidently added to the cloth in one or more very powerful bursts of radiation so that the electron bonds could be altered before the energy penetrated beyond the top, one or two layers of the fibers in the thread. However, where would this radiation have to come from? from? It'd have to come from the body itself. Antonacci and Rucker maintained that it could only have come from one source, the body itself. Again, Rucker explains, well, he goes on, most people dismiss this explanation because <laughs> you can't have a body give that powerful a burst of radiation. What are you talking about? Christians have a possible explanation, don't we? Radiation has the benefit that it not only explains how the image was formed, but also explains all 24 features listed above. Mm-hmm. While protons explain how the image was formed, Neutrons explain why the C-14 dating was off. And by the way, this is in addition to the reasons given that were damning to the carbon-14 dating from last week. Carbon-14 is a rare isotope, as we all know, that is created in the upper atmosphere when a nitrogen-14 atoms absorb blah, 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 science, science. This would have messed up the carbon-14 dating too. It, It explains everything. It seems that the radiation hypothesis is currently the best explanation for how the image was formed on the shroud as it has the largest explanatory scope, greatest explanatory power, and is the most plausible defense for the shroud with all the other evidences. Um, Of course, this does not mean it is problem-free. The idea of a body releasing radiation in one powerful burst is at present scientifically unexplainable. It is certainly not a common event. However, eliminating scientism, if one is open to the possibility of events occurring outside of our current understanding of science, then one should follow the evidence wherever the evidence leads. You know, I agree with that. Because we're not closed-minded. We, we, we can follow evidence wherever it goes, right? If you, if you have this bogus, self-defeating scientism worldview, then you're going to have huge gaps in your knowledge. Yeah, I'll just finish with this. I've got other notes, but I'll just finish with it. This is his um, assessment. Considering all the evidence 
for the authenticity of the shroud, including the image characteristics, science, historical and medical evidence, and the best theory for the formation of the image on the cloth, I believe a plausible and reasonable argument can be made that the best explanation for the identity of the shroud is that it is the actual burial cloth of Jesus. Yeah. And he goes on to say, though, uh, the apologetic value, he's not necessarily saying it's good as a proof of the resurrection, but because of certain features of the image itself on the shroud, that it is consistent with what we know about the gospel accounts of what happened to Jesus before and up to leading to and during his crucifixion itself, you know, uh, from the flogging to being dead and stabbed in the side and all that. Everything about the image is consistent with what we read in the gospel accounts. Now, a lot of what we know about crucifixions in the Roman era come from the gospel accounts, right? Because, I mean, for a lot of people, it was so taboo to even talk about. It's not discussed much in detail what happens, you know. Uh, so I I do think that it is con- we, we can say it it corroborates the gospel account evidence of what we know about crucifixions. I I'm still somewhat skeptical that you can go all the way and say definitely, you know, it it, it demonstrates that Jesus is the the image on the shroud. Does that make sense? Because while the head wounds are consistent with the crown of thorns, it could also be consistent with any other things that, you know, sharp spiked objects entering, uh, you know, causing scalp wounds, maybe from cat of nine tails or just any sort of head trauma. So it's it's really hard to say that it has to be Jesus, but it it likely, you know, he's the best candidate, you know. You can't say definitively, but he's the best candidate. So it does corroborate what we know about uh, ancient crucifixions and a lot of that data we get from uh, the New Testament accounts of Jesus' crucifixion anyway. So there you go. Um, yeah. My uh, take on it. Yeah. Well, it, your takes are always valuable. Uh, Elizabeth says, now that the Catholic Church has a death grip on the shroud, do you think there's any hope of true scientific analysis ever again? A different pope, maybe? Technology has come so far since the 70s. Well, the, the 80s is when we uh, had... Uh, 80s is when the carbon testing was done. The yeah. 70s was when Sturp. the stirp happened. I have, but I, I yeah, have I hope. Think so. I have yeah. hope that that they'll see a lot. A lot of is, see, I don't know. I don't want to. If this was Bible bro down, we could put on tinfoil hats, you know, like Matt Chisholm does. But um, it's not Bible bro down. So I don't think that the Catholic Church is necessarily hiding it away from further research just simply because they don't want it to be exposed because it seems like if you talk to Catholic scholars, they're not all selling this as authentic. You know, I mean, they're, 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 they're not all on board with this being, you know, they're, they're not saying, yeah, this is definitely a relic. This is definitely something where not all Catholics even agree with that. You know, I mean, Catholic scholars are, are level-headed too. Uh, so, it, I, I don't know that it's all involved around trying to hide it from from scrutiny. Um, now, the guy that we talked about his article last week is convinced that it, they are. Pretty much said if if 
this had always been in the Vatican's possession. No research would have ever been done if it wasn't that King uh, Umberto Umberto, uh, was in (laughs) his possession. But I I do think that the Catholic Church at some point will probably open it up. Will that happen anytime soon? I have no idea. But I don't give up hope that they're just going to hide it away from scientific experiments forever. So. Uh, I know that Slam RN is like what well, we should stay on topic or everything, but but I think this is a good one. I, we've answered this a lot, so I'll give it real fast. My biggest problem with Christian physicalism is because I think it makes no sense of the resurrection. Obviously, we've listed that we think there are some biblical reasons to reject Christian physicalism. However, um, uh, if you, uh, the, the biggest problem for me is I don't know how you have the continuity of identity. That is to say, um, on the physicalist Christian physicalist understanding— um, your your body will die and it will decay and it will go back to dust, right? And so a lot of people are cremated and all that sort of thing. And even if that didn't happen, every so many years, most of the cells in your body cycle out and you have almost a, no, a whole new physical body anyway, as mind-blowing as that is. So what's going to happen at the resurrection, according to Christian physicalists, is God's going to resurrect, but they really mean recreate your body. Um, and... God could do that with all the same memories and everything in there because if physicalism is true and all that is stored physically, but that won't be you. That will be a copy of you. Your conscious experience will have been dead, will have been gone. It just ended. And so uh, the the best explanation, I've heard so many explanations. I just sent someone at the Rethinking L conference, three academic papers from Christian physicalists who are trying to give an explanation of how this could work. And it, and, and I, I, I happily send those to people when they ask for them, because the best that physicalists have produced on this, to my mind, is so laughably absurd. It's so obviously reaching. I don't, I, I'm glad they're trying to do it, uh, more power to them, but it, it, I think it makes our case all the more. Um, and then on top of that, um, that you've got this problem with the continuity of identity. If God's going to recreate your physical body from all new matter in the end, he could do that right now standing in front of you. But would that be your conscious experience? No, you'd be looking across at someone over there who looks just like you, who claims to have all the memories and claims to be you. But you'd be thinking, no, I'm right here. He's over there. And I don't have his conscious experience. It would be a copy. And the, the one of the answers I heard, I, 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 Joel B. Green has a book on this. He was the president of Fuller, maybe still is. I think he's the former president of Fuller. And he wrote a book on this and he promises that he's going to handle that issue. And so I read the whole book and I'm right at the end. And he finally addresses this issue and his explanation is basically that whatever it is that makes up your identity is like basically absorbed into the light of God and then put back into your recreated physical body. But to my mind, I'm like, wait a minute. Why not a soul? Then? Why is that not a soul? My yeah. identity is absorbed out of, out of what? My physical body? I mean, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't. So that's my biggest thing. I, I am so confident of that problem being a problem. And then if I do, you know, if, if Michael Jones is right and idealism is true, then that's, you know. Well, then it's just soul yeah, kind of fu- uh, not information. Yeah. Mind. Yeah. Mind is uh, yeah. fundamental. Uh, Super Wood Putty says, hey, dudes, I'm sure you all been busy. Thank you for acknowledging that. Have you all had a chance to check out the response to your dilemma? So I did see that you posted something and I did start to watch it. I didn't get all the way through the whole thing because it, it, it was lengthy. And I, I ha- it is my plan to get back to it because I still have in mind to respond to everything, all the responses to my 10 questions for atheists. And that's one of the questions there. But just to answer you right now, I think that your primary concern, 
because you were nice enough to nutshell it for me, is that that what I'm saying would require the atheist to prove something that is unfalsifiable, namely that God does not exist. Now, the problem with that is, number one, you can falsify things. Um, you can false, you can prove negatives. You can falsify things by showing a contradiction in the nature of that thing. That's why people try to um, use pro- arguments from evil the and arguments from omnipotent, logical problems. And, yeah, logical problem to try and show that sort of thing. Um, and maybe you know that and you're saying, yeah, but still, I don't think we can do it. But and it, we could go to the North Pole but, and look around for Santa and but, all but kinds here, of things. But here's the thing with that. That actually doesn't get around the dilemma. Now, maybe you say more in the lengthy video, but if you're saying, but we're not able to do that, then what you would do is then, then have epistemic humility about that and say, then I won't compare God to Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or things that I can demonstrate likely don't exist. Okay, so that, that's, what, that's how the dilemma yeah. works. The dilemma doesn't yeah. say you can't disbelieve in God or something. It's saying if you're going to take a position of lack theism, then don't compare God to things that you believe do not exist. Right. So yeah. in my mind, that 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 retort to you actually works against our works in favor of the dilemma. Because look, if if you're going to say that you simply lack a belief of God, uh, but you actively but you're comparing God to Santa, which you don't just lack a belief in Santa, you refuse to acknowledge the existence of Santa, right? You you disbelieve in Santa. So if to be consistent, you have to either A, disbelieve in God, or B, whatever means by which you actively disbelieve in Santa, you need to apply to God, which means it can be falsifiable like what you're talking about. Otherwise, stop making the comparison. It's not about whether or not you can prove or disprove something. Is if you're going to compare your, your lack of belief to God and then your active belief, disbelief in Santa as as the same thing that doesn't mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. that's what the point of the dilemma is it's irrelevant someone you know, want to know where your you diet citrus drop where you can get that kroger or i don't get the uh, kroger has owns ruler foods outlet and but it's a kroger brand so if you have a kroger you can get this because kroger brand anything is better than like name brand almost everything unless we're talking about frank's red hot uh punch bowl haircut sauce. says hunter dilemma sounds like a sweet band name yeah Okay, the walrus was Jason. Santa is based on a real person. So, yes, Santa is real as a homage to the real person. Okay, this, now let me just say, this is one of those objections that Cameron and I thought about when we originally did this on his channel before we ever brought it out, rolled it out. And, of co- and we actually respond to that, which is to say, okay, but when, you compare God, when people are comparing God to Santa Claus— they're obviously not comparing God to the historical figure upon which the Santa myth is based. There's actually several. And if you are, then you're saying nothing, right? We're comparing him to the red suit, magic, flying uh, reindeer, elves that make toys, goes all over the world in one night because he's interdimensional. Uh, th- th- that's what they're comparing it to. It, because So if you were comparing it to the real Santa the, the, the comment would never exist. It wouldn't come. Yeah. Okay. Um, in fact, I liked that. The even godless Santa engineer or the clause of faith. What yeah. Are we talking yeah. About here? <laughs> um, but, but, but even, uh, even uh, when we brought that up in the video, even godless engineer, when he made his response was like, Oh, I'm not going to entertain that because you're right. That's not what they're saying. Yeah. And that's not fair. 
Um, so somebody said, somebody asked uh, Trevor Adams, best non-Calvinist commentaries on Romans doing a Bible study and need help. Can I try? Can I try? Okay. Yeah. Okay. For a more casual one, you can go with uh, Craig Keener's Romans for everyday people. New common. No, you're thinking. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, He's got one. It's just aimed more at. Uh, it's it's blue and white on the cover. Yeah, I've that's got the new Kindle. covenant commentary series. And it's not it's not real tough. Like it's yeah. yeah. And, but then there's also Witherington. Ben Witherington the third has a Romans commentary, right? Vic Reasoner's commentary is probably the most informative if you're interested in theological stuff. Um, so Vic Reasoner is hard to find though. Um, I, I think you can get it get it electronically, but Rick Wiesner's a Wesleyan commentary on Romans is great. Um, I think Witherington's is great. Um, I don't agree with uh, certain chunks of it, but uh, very helpful in, in terms of a lot of the sociological and, and uh, background detail, cultural detail, rhetorical backgrounds to Roman. Great stuff there. Uh, Keener's always good. Um, like I said, I think I mentioned this last week. Dunn's word commentary is always good. It's dated, you know, late 80s. Um, Fitzmyers commentary. Um, he's a Catholic scholar, but his commentary is phenomenal from, from the Anchor series. So. Uh, Jamie Russell says, what did McRae say? Yeah, Steve McRae did an episode on The Hunter's Dilemma in which he largely agreed with it. He's an agnostic, but he largely agreed with it. The only caveat he wanted to make is he he's one of those that says someone who takes the lactheist position still has a burden of proof. Like we, he, we all grant that. Really? If, yeah. If you're saying that, that God does exist, you have a burden of proof. If you're saying God does not, you have a burden of proof. He says, if you're smack in the middle and say that you just lack a belief, you have a burden of proof. Your burden of proof is to explain why you remain unconvinced in either direction. Hmm. Good point. So, um, so that, but I thought that was all good. Yeah. Um, Derek says, who is predestined for what in Ephesians 1 through 4? Ephesians 1 through 4, uh, one, uh, sorry, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. I think Pritchett and I are in agreement that yeah. that is primarily talking about what we would call corporate election. That is to say, uh, you were chosen in Christ, not chosen to be in Christ. Yeah, the Jew plus Gentile church uh, of believers in Christ are predestined for all of the blessings. You get all the that stuff in, Jesus gets. Yeah, that are enumerated. Join heirs. In the, heirs, uh, in the all the stuff listed. Opening section of Ephesians. Yeah. yeah, it's all listed there. You get all the, the stuff Exordium, as it is yeah. called. Because One huge sentence in Greek. Because but all the blessings he enumerated there in that passage, that's what you're predestined for. Yeah, because you'll find uh, ten times in Ephesians 1, um, in Christ, in the Beloved, that's in Him, in Jesus. Now there's ten, and then there's 24 times it says us, we, uh, you, referring to a group of people. So... This is clearly, I think, corporate language. Pritchett doesn't like when you say clearly, but I think this is clearly corporate language. And so Jesus no, was chosen. No, I, I, I say it's, that, that's an instance of fine because it's plural. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, clear, so it's, it's clearly more than one. So he's, so he's basically Jesus is chosen. Yeah. You can be in Jesus or you cannot be in Jesus. That's up to you. And when are you in Jesus? When you believe, verse yeah. 15. So it's, it's like it's not hard The stuff. Castle High School uh, choir was asked to sing at the White was chosen to sing at the White House. Yeah. Okay, but they didn't choose the individuals in that choir. You can be in that choir or not be in that choir so long as you meet the 
uh, as long as you you're, you make sure it's true about you, what's supposed to be true about you to be in the choir. As uh, as least plausible as I argued last week of the reformed or Calvinist reading of Romans 8, 29, 30, I could enter, you know, what we talk about, Paul was talking about Chewbacca and, and Han Solo. Go through the entire sci-fi canon of, uh, of your favorites from the Matrix. Anything is more plausible than the Reformed reading of Ephesians, in my mind. So, Anything. That is, like, so implausible that I don't even take it. Sorry, Calvinist, first, I don't even take your reading seriously in Ephesians 1. At all. I don't even entertain it anymore. It's so flippantly dismissible. Sorry, I'm not trying to be mean. I just—it's so— No. Zamo says, sup, Pritchard. Sup. Is that—do do people know that your name is Pritchett and they do that to irritate you? Yeah. Okay. Because one of the few things actually, okay, all my I have trophies from participating in sports where I actually won things, not just for participation, but I participated in sports and won things and have Pritchard or Jonathan. Jonathan. Like, like my, That's OM. what we're doing right now is a Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Punchbowl Haircut says, what are your thoughts on current popular worship songs? Do, do you like or hate the music? Do you have any faves, any specific lyrics you like or don't like? Oh, boy, you're going to get me in trouble. I'm sure Pritchett says, no, it's all terrible. I like no, I don't say it's all terrible. Some of it's okay. The best worship music is is from the King's Horsemen, um, where they sing Amazing <laughs> Grace on this oh, channel. Yes. The four, they used to be known as the Four Horsemen of the New Atheism. Now they're the King's Horsemen. And so Richard uh, Dawkins, Sam Harris, so, Daniel Dennett. So Chris some Richard. of the contemporary worship music is fine in my mind. Most of it is not my cup of tea. And since I'm, if I'm not, sorry, Brett, if I'm not intentionally arriving at church late to skip it, you know, I find most of it tolerable at best. Uh, so if I do show up for a portion of the... See, our, our, our sanctuary is dark, so you, they can't see you come in late anyways. Uh, That's why I love contemporary services. But but when I ha when I am sitting through it, there's like 10% of the songs don't bother me. The rest just aren't my cup of tea, so I just tune it out. So I'm not really one to, to judge. I can. Uh, I'll judge it. Uh, I yeah. love hymns. I really love hymns. Yeah. Um, I love... Uh, the crappy knockoff uh, Nickelback sounding no 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 <laughs> acoustic guitar just pre Nickelback youth group music that I had oh like our God is an awesome God type stuff more like um um what was the one that was so popular about a tower or a strong tower or I don't know heart of worship all those youth group songs, but I like a good ethereal worship environment. That's got some good U2 slash Coldplay post-rock ambient noise in it. Um, some I, of it's okay. Some I don't like the just, I don't like the just worship leaders that I've mentioned recently on the show who, who get up there and somehow just is their favorite one. Well, Lord, we just, we just want to just come into your presence and just feel and just Lord, just make it right. And Lord, just please just, I, I don't, I don't, I, you know, don't, I don't know, Expanding but I like some specific songs. I like the 10,000, is it 10,000? The one that's, that's, I think it's Matt Redman or something. See, he doesn't pay attention either to, to contemporary worship music. He's like, I, I know no, all about ten, this. No, they'll uh, know, that, this they'll know the 10,000. You don't song. listen to it either. You're just trying to, they'll be know nice the 10,000 song. I like that one. And I, and I, Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get, 
There's a Hillsong song that you like, I'm right? I'm going to get in trouble. There's a Hillsong or Bethel hey, song that you like, All right? truth is God's truth, man. And I don't endorse Hillsong at all. And I'm not even sure it's them that sings this, but I think it is. But that So Will I song, that'll put me in the presence of God. Yeah, but Braxton, <laughs> Braxton, don't you understand that if you, if you, if you, if, if even though no one in the church, like 95% don't even know what Hillsong is. Don't you know that if you play one Hillsong, that's a slippery slope to all kind of heresy. You're in inviting church. demons in. Right. It was Hillsong Paul was talking about when he says not to give the devil a foothold in your life. Right. <laughs> not anger like the Bible says. Like you go up to, I, I, like in our church, if you go up to 90 to 95% of the people in that church, do you know, do you know anything about Hillsong? You're like, Who? What? The only people worried about this is evangelicals on the internet that have an axe to grind because they pay attention to stuff. Uh, You're lucky if the majority of your church pays attention to your own church's bulletin. Okay? They don't... Anyway. Yeah. Um, The programmer says, uh, have I ever read the work of atheist philosopher Dr. Graham Oppie? Of course. Uh, I read the one... No, we don't read books by... I read the one that was was on atheism that that was a more... um, a simpler book on atheism, but there was one about gods. What's it called? Gods, uh, Oppie. Let me see. Uh, Oppie books. The the one that's like about different gods or uh, arguing about gods. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yes, of course. Are you kidding? That's like asking an atheist whether they've read William Lane Craig. Um, uh, actually, no, it's not because I, <laughs> they wouldn't have read William Lane. Right. Atheist. Athe- I have gotten on to atheists about this in previous episodes. Uh, Christians read more atheist literature than atheists read uh, Christian literature. Arminians and what what are they the trad provision list whatever they're called now Leighton Flowers bunch and Arminians and non they read more Calvinist literature than Calvinists read non Calvinist literature. It, Calvinists and atheists have so much in common that it, it, you know you can point these kinds of things out, but that's just Elizabeth Maines. First of all, thank you for that super chat. Yeah, awesome. I just finished the latest video in the Genesis series after binging the first 34 hours. When can we expect the next one? You're my hero, Elizabeth. That is amazing. Yeah, I'm impressed that you could... Um, please tell me you did say that something on, like, mean. Double just fi- say no, something I mean, mean. Come on, we have to. Just... I know you're gonna say no, something mean. It's 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 it's. Some people like to binge watch Netflix. Some people like to binge watch. I'm not. I don't judge. Elizabeth, well, if I'm you did saying, judge, you should judge uh, honorably. Yeah, way someone. To, way to go. Yeah, your thing is worth. But see, my thing is like. You know, you want something to listen Gosh. to over time so that you don't run out and exhaust it because oh. now she's facing the very problem because of your busy schedule right now, not having to be start Pritchett's uh, first Peter series that's also on the channel. And I'll give you like two hours. Yeah, more. and then you can join the choir of people complaining that I haven't got to that. And by the way, you haven't done one in a few weeks. I haven't done one in three years. So, but here's the thing <laughs> don't, don't, I'm going to have it done no. by the end of the year, Elizabeth. And I, I, I'm going to commit that next week. In honor of Thanksgiving, it's a weird chapter to talk about on Thanksgiving, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. Man, yeah. You know the kidnapping of Dinah? Yeah. You know, like the greatest military strategy in all the Bible? I- I'm not sure that's the chapter we're on, but it's coming up where basically these guys want to want to marry Dinah, who they kidnapped. 
And I, God, I hold on. Yeah. And God's and uh, uh, Jacob. Uh, I'm sorry, Jacob's children are like. Tell you what we're going to do. Tell those guys if they want to be a part of the family, they all got to circumcise themselves. But listen to me, Elizabeth. This <laughs> and, is this. And is, then after they circumcise themselves and are thus incapacitated, they the, just go through and kill them all. The thing that she is dealing with right now is exactly why I told you that I won't watch the Mandalorian until the whole see this idea of not. See, Trinity Radio just needs to start Netflixing our stuff because... There's a new Mandalorian tonight. Yes, and wait. Don't watch any of it because then you're going to be like having to wait a week for the next episode. See, this this Disney Plus release once a week instead of dropping the whole... Like, The Crown came out and we got all 10 episodes of the, of the fourth season at once. You can knock it out in a weekend and you move on with your life. She's got to wait for you to get caught up. See, this is why you should just wait till the whole book is done and then... And the good news about that is Trinity Radio is part of the, a consortium of other podcasts. In the meantime, while you wait on Braxton, you can go to Steve Gregg's The Narrow Path, and he has gen- his Genesis series has been completed for years. So you can go check out thenarrowpath.com and go through Steve Gregg's uh, series on Genesis, and I'm sure that you'll get through a large chunk of it given how much you binge at once before Braxton gets his Thanksgiving special Genesis episode. Out, so. <laughs> the, th- the Thanksgiving special <laughs> that has nothing to do with Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, but go check out Steve Gregg's uh, series on Genesis. Thankful. He's got the entire Bible done. The only thing that I will say about Steve Gregg is that if you were to audit my minor prophets course here at Trinity College of Bible and Theological Seminary, my section on Obadiah is two and a half hours. Whereas the illustrious Steve Gregg only spent 20 minutes, and I made sure I brought that up at dinner when he was in town that day. I was like, you've got this whole Bible done, but you only spent 20 minutes on, on Obadiah, and I spent two and a half hours. So I got you there. And that's the only thing where I yeah, have um, on Steve Gregg, is that uh, I spent more time blathering about it. Where's where's the—I just was asked— Oh, first of all, um, to commit to anything in 2020, um, uh, Lord willing is what I need to say, right? Um, someone asked me about uh, where I think Mount Sinai is. Oh, here we go. Jamie Russell says, Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia, your thoughts? I don't know which one. For those that don't know, there is the Mount Sinai where uh, uh, Moses got the Ten Commandments and all that whole thing went down. Um, all, the, the, where is it? Well, there are, po- there are multiple possible locations. Um, there was a Catherine's Monastery built where we got one of the, I think it's Codex... Sinaiticus, maybe I don't know. Yeah, it would be Codex Sinaiticus. Um, I for a long time just assumed that might be it, but there's one of them, and I don't remember J Ball something maybe where. Um, and there's a weird kind of like Indiana Jones type guy who's not necessarily all that credible, who found all these reasons he's certain this is the one. But there's one there that has the top of the mountain is like charred all the way across, as if maybe the Shekinah glory of God was present. So the simple answer is, I don't know, but hey, the Shroud of Turin has been so much fun. Yeah. Maybe we need to talk about the actual location of Mount Sinai. There we go. More rabbit holes. I've been trying to think of something else we could do for the Friday live stream similar to this one, because this Shroud of Turin has been so much fun. Well, listen, I'll tell you what, we've... Um, we've gone on for, for an hour and a half, yeah. and many of those in our viewing audience need to... Take a break because in what thirty minutes, uh, Winger comes on, and so yeah, they might want to get up and make some food and take a restroom break and all that. Are we getting a Black Friday live stream? 
I don't know. That's a good question. Why don't we go ahead and tell y'all now that just to be sure, we'll try to do Tuesday of of next week. You want to do Tuesday for a live stream? Because Thanksgiving's next weekend. Right, whatever. Tuesday. We'll do Tuesday. I work for you, man. I do what I'm told. And I work for the Lord. All right. You want to do a Mandalorian live stream talk. All right, so uh, this has been fun, guys. Oh, yeah, we could do like a a watch party. Most of the people that come here don't care. Anytime I try to do something that is not exactly our niche on this channel. It fails. It fails, even if I think it's something awesome. So. Anyway, we appreciate you taking the time out to come watch Trinity Radio. If you like Trinity Radio, you can also become a patron and support us at Trinity or at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. If you want to learn casually, you can go to BraxtonHunter.com and continue the fun with all sorts of stuff. You can go to our back catalog here on the YouTube channel. You can go to Trinity Radio Extra and see all kinds of extra goodies there. You can also go view our sister podcast, The Narrow Path, Steve Gregg. Bible Brodown with Billy Winland and Matt Chisholm and Soteriology 101 with Leighton Flowers. We have Theo Apologetics with Chris Date and there's others that Braxton will have to start talking about. No, actually, if you want to really help us out, I appreciate that you all give us uh, so many super chats. But if anyone wants to help us out, um, you can help us out in a more regular way at patreon.com slash Radio. Link is in the description. And with that, Pritchett, take us out. Become a subscriber if you're watching this and you are not a subscriber. Click the subscribe button and the notification bell. And we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.